welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me on this episode is the wonderful Delisa O'Brien. Hello. Hello, Delisa. And we actually tried to do this once before, uh, I think due to a mixture of technological issues and tequila, it didn't go so well. Uh, so I want to definitely get uh, back into this and hopefully this goes pretty well. Practice makes perfect. Uh, now, in late 2008, I made the move from Indiana to New Jersey in order to attend the Kubert School and learn more about cartooning and graphic arts. The school's student housing was a large, older building nicknamed The Mansion, which is kind of an accurate description of the place, just not quite as nice as what most people think when they hear that name. The first night I spent in The Mansion was a small party where everyone was getting to know each other, and during this, we all found comics left behind from previous generations of students for us to pour through. This was my first time stumbling upon the Punisher comic, where at the very end of the issue, it's revealed that the titular hero had switched races and was now a black man. And that, as well as a brief history of the character and his relationship to some troubling aspects of our history, are what we are going to talk about today, because as a show predominantly preoccupied with comics and the culture around it, I am contractually obligated to do so. There are other shows that have tackled this before. The ones that come immediately to my mind are Linkara's Atop the Fourth Wall or the show Comic Tropes. But I feel there's a lot more to actually cover than what has been done in the past. I've taken the time to research a lot of seemingly background information that isn't directly involved in the story, but it's still a huge part of the character's personal baggage. There also happens to be a lot more behind-the-scenes information that fleshes out the decisions made that led to this ever actually being created. I want to cover all of this, and as such, this will be a longer take on the story than I've been able to find anywhere else, and that's partially because I don't think this is just a silly story that should be ignored. This is oddly important. And I do want to make a disclaimer that this story involves a lot of talks of race, which is often not handled well, as well as extreme acts of violence, sexism, and some brief mentions of sexual assault. If any of these things are hard to hear about, it would be best to not listen to this particular episode. There's no real way to talk about this story, its implications, or its impact without addressing the greater context of who this character is. I want to take us back in time a bit to talk about The Punisher. Way back in the early 70s, Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew were working on the wildly successful Amazing Spider-Man series, and with the start of issue 129, they decided to introduce two new villains, The Jackal and The Punisher. Now, Delisa, have you ever actually heard of the Jackal? I have not. Um, when you said it, I was thinking Joker, but I have not heard of the Jackal. The Jackal is a character that was famous in Spider-Man, mostly for starting out the Clone Saga. Uh, he cloned Spider-Man as well as his girlfriend Gwen Stacy. It, originally, it was just a very short story that got put out and uh, eventually just ignored until the mid-90s when uh, he was brought back and the almost entirety of the 90s became the Clone Saga. He is eclipsed almost immediately by the Punisher. <laughs> As Jerry Conway explains it, I was fascinated by the Don Pendleton Executioner character, which was fairly popular at the time, and I wanted to do something that was inspired by that, although not to my mind a copy of it. And while I was doing the Jackal storyline, the opportunity came for a character who would be used by the Jackal to make Spider-Man's life miserable. The Punisher seemed to fit. 
Later in 2002, Conway added a bit more context, stating, In the 70s, when I was writing comics at DC and Marvel, I made it a practice to sketch my own ideas for the costumes of new characters, heroes and villains, which I offered to the artists as crude suggestions representing the image I had in mind. I had done this with the Punisher at Marvel. And this proved to be a stroke of genius, since the sketch that he made would go on to be one of the most iconic costumes in superhero comics, that of a man with a skull emblazoned on his chest. It was John Romita Sr., however, that took the design and tweaked it to be what we all know and love. And I'm going to quote from his interview with the comics reporter. After I had created a few villains for Stan, other editors started to come to me. Guys like Marv Wolfman and Linwine and Jerry Conway when he was writing Spider-Man. When we did The Punisher, I tried a trick. I assumed they were going to ask for a guy with a mask. I did him in a costume, and I tried a different way of doing a skull on the costume. I made the skull the entire torso instead of a small, costu- a small skull and crossbones. But then I did him without a mask on purpose, fully expecting that they were going to come back in half an hour saying, we like the costume, but put a mask on him. When they didn't come in, I had this confusion. Are they saying if John Romita doesn't put a mask on him, that's good? Or are they saying it looks good this way, we like it that way? I never ask them, and I always forget to ask them. So here's a guy who's going to be a vigilante. Of all the people who need a mask, he does. How does he get away without a mask? I wanted to see expressions on his face. I did not want to have a mask where you don't see expressions. And I think that's actually uh, pretty smart on on their part. Uh, I I was looking back uh, just last night on a few comics, and some of the characters were wearing masks, and it felt a little dated and I like superhero comics, but I I think especially in the age of like the Marvel superhero movies, you are more likely to see a character just without their mask. And it's easier to relate to them. I think. That is true. And I guess, um, now that it has been like brought to light that there's a lot of like facial recognition software in cities that might not have been a problem back then. So he could have, felt more like liberated to just walk around and like show his face. Well, I I think especially with what some of what we cover later, he could probably feel liberated anyway, considering (laughs) he's a white man getting away with doing what, if you put a black man in that character role, he would not get away with any of this. Or, you know, some other black man might be fit the description and, take the blame instead it's later when we actually get to the storyline um where the punisher and luke cage team up uh this is kind of, it's this problem with the art and i didn't really mention it uh in doing my writing for this uh but the artist definitely doesn't do a very good job of making them look like two different people they look so similar and it's very uncomfortable because there's a line that you walk there of all black people uh, look alike. Come on. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was very uncomfortable to read. Uh, so now the Punisher has his iconic look, but he doesn't have a name. Enter Stan Lee, who in 2005 stated Jerry Conway was writing a script and he wanted a character that would turn out to be a hero later on. And he came up with the name, the assassin. And I mentioned that I didn't think he could ever have a comic book where the hero would be called the assassin because there's just too much of a negative connotation to that word. 
And I remembered that some time ago, I had had a relatively unimportant character who was one of Galactus's robots, and I had called him the Punisher. And it seemed to me that that was a good name for the character Jerry wanted to write. So I said, why not call him the Punisher? And since I was the editor, Jerry said, okay. And and here's a quick note here. Stan Lee was actually the publisher at that time, but he's known to be quite forgetful. So it's very possible he just misspoke during all of that. But I do find that interesting because I think the assassin kind of fits the character a little bit more than the Punisher. Uh, There are times when, I mean, punishment doesn't necessarily mean to kill somebody. Yeah. Uh, but this character is like predominantly known for murdering what he considers bad guys. And for the most part, they are. I mean, which is like the connection there with like the actual police. But we can get to that later. And that definitely will come up later. Uh, so, but this is sort of the perfect example of how comics tend to work. You have your plotter or your scripter developing something and it gets handed off to someone else, which gets handed off to someone else. And by the end, you have this collaborative effort to create something unique. This particular instance, however, also highlights an important issue. Stan Lee, Jerry Conway, John Romita Sr., Ross Andrew, and even Dave Hunt, the inker and the colorist on this issue, all had a hand in creating the Punisher. And they all also happened to be white. And being white creators during the 70s, the default for a character was to have them also be white. That's not to say that there wasn't a concerted effort at this time to make characters from different backgrounds and ethnicities, because there absolutely was. But outside of stories specifically about them and their race, it wasn't often you'd find a character who played a major role and was anything other than white outside of something like the X-Men. And this gets to be a somewhat important choice in how the character is perceived later on. So the Punisher debuts in The Amazing Spider-Man number 129 as a ruthless vigilante willing to kill those he believes deserves it. During this story, Spider-Man is wanted by the police for the murder of Norman Osborn, which he didn't do. But the Punisher believes that he did, and he has teamed up with the Jackal to basically take out Spider-Man. After a brief rooftop fight where the villains believe that they've killed our hero, the Punisher pays a visit to the mechanic in order to get a replacement gun for one he lost during the fight. But when he arrives, he finds the mechanic is dead and Spider-Man standing over him. The two briefly fight and soon discover that the Jackal has orchestrated everything and left incriminating evidence in order to get the Punisher arrested. Realizing he had been duped, he agrees to leave Spider-Man alone, but before he takes off, Spider-Man asks why a Marine, like the Punisher, would be fighting killers in New York. The Punisher responds, That's my business, superhero, not yours. Maybe when I'm dead, it'll mean something. But right now, I'm just a warrior fighting a lonely war. And that's really all we get from the original story. We never learn more than that he was a Marine, he has a moral code, and he's willing to kill. And Vague Hints had a tragic background. But this was enough to capture the attention of readers, and probably more importantly, the imagination of creators. As Jerry Conway explains it in an interview with Sci-Fi Now, My first notion for the character was that he was going to be a one-issue throwaway character. But as I developed that issue, I helped design the costume and started scripting the story, and I found that I really liked him. I liked the fact that he was both clearly irrational in his methodology, but moral in his objectives. He was taking a moral stance, which was not to say that you should go around killing people, but that he had a clearly delineated sense of right and wrong, and good and evil. 
and in his view of what he was doing, he was good. The greater conflict came about from the manner in which he was taking action was bad and in conflict with Spider-Man. It was almost a joining of those conflicting impulses. So we have this situation where a guy who's trying to do good is doing something bad and we're both on his side and against him. And our hero is a victim of his insanity and so on. It worked out really well. And as I was writing it, I thought, I don't want to kill this guy off. I don't want to get rid of him. I want to keep him around. And even before we got the fan response, we were planning a comeback for the character. And then when the fan response came in and it was clear that we hit a nerve, so to our surprise and my personal delight, because I liked the character, we ended up with this fairly iconic Marvel figure. And that's what most people kind of know about the Punisher anyway. He was like a Marine or someone in the military and he kills people, but he's got like a a pretty good sense of right and wrong, even though he, you know, kills people. So actually, I always forget that he was a Marine. I usually associate him with being a police officer. And I guess that's part of how the Punisher image has like morphed in my brain. Um, so yeah, that, that part, I was like, oh yeah, he wasn't a cop. There is good reason for that. And I think a lot of that has to do with his association with police officers, which we will talk about a little bit later. I, I actually, you know, I think in one of the Punisher movies, he was a police officer. I, oh. I, 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 I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was the Tom Jane one. Um, but I'm pretty sure he was a police officer in one of those movies. And so, I mean, there's even more of a connection there. Uh, so the Punisher showed up several more times throughout the years, but got his first solo story in 1975's Marvel Preview Number 2 which was part of their black and white line of comics and published more like a magazine, which included things like interviews alongside their stories. In fact, the very first issue for which The Punisher was the main feature included an interview with Don Pendleton, the creator of The Executioner, who Jerry Conway had already admitted to being a main inspiration for The Punisher himself. Marvel Preview was one of those series that didn't last very long, but it has a long shadow. Characters like Star-Lord and Rocket Raccoon, for instance, debuted in this title before moving on to other series and eventually becoming household names due to the massive success of Guardians of the Galaxy. In this issue, though, Jerry Conway and Tony DeZuniga penned a story I actually hadn't read before until starting the research for this, and I absolutely loved it. Essentially, the story is that the Punisher stopped a political assassination from a disgruntled Vietnam War veteran that he actually knew during his tour. The Punisher then goes on a mission to find out who was behind this and stumbles into a private army of ex-Marines who are trying to overthrow the United States government. It's thrilling stuff, but the most important thing for the topic of this discussion is the reveal that the Punisher's family was killed before his own eyes, and this is what has driven him to fight his own private war against the criminal underground. As a minor sidebar, um, Mm -hmm. doing a Google of the 2004 The Punisher movie, he is an FBI agent. And That's the one I was thinking of, too. <laughs> yeah. So his family was murdered, and then he turns criminal. But they put him as an FBI agent in this version. And, and that makes sense, too. I don't think... The only uh, reason the whole Marine or soldier aspect of it, uh, I think, is that important is really just uh, to get across, like, his skills. Yes, exactly. Like, as long as he's on one side of the law beforehand and kind of does things like normally, I think that's the, the big important part of that character. 
So that's the essential background for who the Punisher is on a fundamental level. You might recognize that I never actually gave him a real name during all of this, and there's good reason. From what I was able to figure out, he wasn't officially given a name on panel until his first solo miniseries in 1986, 12 years after his first appearance. His name is Frank Castle, sort of. This actually gets retconned later into being a pseudonym, but it's what everybody knows him for anyway, so it's basically his name. And it might seem odd that he's not named during all of this time, but most of his appearances during this gap were as a supporting character in Spider-Man, Daredevil, or even Captain America comics. And as Jerry Conway explained it, he was created to be an oppositional figure to superheroes. In a sense, he's the worst impulse of the superhero, right? The superhero takes the law into his own hands. He sets himself up as above the law, or outside the law at the very least. So the Punisher is a madhouse mirror reflection of that. When you see him in a standalone story, or as they tried to do it in the movies, in a real-world context, he doesn't really work. First of all, you start making him more realistic, and once he starts getting more realistic, the immoral part of his actions starts taking on greater and greater weight, and it becomes harder and harder to see him as a potential sympathetic figure or at least as a deluded figure that you can empathize with. When a guy is standing alone in a room shooting a whole bunch of people, you might say, yes, I think these are bad people and they should all die. But at the same time, there's a part of you that gets very queasy. On the other hand, if he's going up against a superhero who's already in a kind of morally vague sort of world, then this issue is a little bit less cut and dry, and you can play with the moral ambiguity. So yes, short answer, he does work better in a superhero world than on his own. That being said, he's obviously been very successful in his own uh, world, but in his heyday, the late 80s, I think it was, he was mostly the character that was brought into other Marvel books to spice things up. And this is, in some respects, at odds with how he is later perceived. He stops becoming a foil to others or a tragic tale or even a tale meant to cause others to question their own morality. Instead, he becomes a symbol uh, one that's latched on to by two specific groups. And it'll become clear the more we talk about these groups why this is related to the topic at hand. But I first want to clarify that a lot of this data is from uh, many, many years after the story we are going to cover. I still feel this is relevant, however, for two very specific reasons. One, it adds greater context to how the character is perceived today, including how this colors our perception of stories that happened in the past. Two, it might indicate a correlation to how the character was perceived when the story was published, since he still speaks to those same ideas. Now I'll talk about those two groups separately, because I believe that he appeals to them for different reasons, even if those reasons are very similar. All of that being said, I think it's time we talk about why the Punisher appeals to our first group, cops and soldiers. So I'm, I'm sorry to drag you into this conversation. I'm sure it's not what you really want to be talking about right now. I mean, it has to be talked about, you know, it's part of growth for some, I guess. Uh, so since this community is something that can be boiled down to gun havers, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that the guns have a lot to do with it. But it's not just guns. And it's also not just his background as a Marine. As Chris Kyle, former Navy SEAL of American Sniper fame, wrote in his book, we all thought what the Punisher did was cool. He righted wrongs. He killed bad guys. He made wrongdoers fear him. We spray-painted the Punisher skull on our Hummers and body armor, and our helmets and all of our guns. And we spray-painted it on every building or wall we could. We wanted people to know, we're here, and we want to fuck with you. But, I mean, that's nice. That's cool. 
super, super good of them. Super, you know, calming to know that these people are here to fuck with us. That's awesome. Uh, So this mentality seems to be along the lines of moral superiority. They feel righteous in their killings. But some others argue that's also not necessarily true. According to the Kentucky Police Chief Cameron Logan, who, after public outcry, decided to remove the Punisher decals featuring Blue Lives Matter from police cars, this has nothing to do with it. He said... We're getting so many calls, and they're saying that the Punisher logo means we're out to kill people, and that's not the meaning behind that. That didn't cross my mind. The meaning of the logo, they claim, isn't about the killing that the Punisher commits. But Cameron Logan went on to say that he would need to do more research in the future. Regardless, though, this isn't an isolated incident. I'm going to quote from an article found in the journal Sentinel. A Milwaukee Police Department commander investigated a suspected rogue group of officers known as the Punishers, who wore black gloves and caps embossed with skull emblems while on patrol. Captain James Galazuski examined what his report calls a gang, first in 2005 and again in 2007. The police academy supervisor concluded both times the Punishers represented a danger that warranted further investigation and action by the police department. This is a group of rogue officers within our agency who I would characterize as brutal and abusive, Galazuski wrote. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really uh, disheartening. I, the, the fact that it happened in 2005 and then again in 2007 is uh, mind-boggling to me, that they, it just sort of happened and they, they let it go for two years. Yeah. And also, it's like, what, who were they punishing? Is the question, like, you know, if you think of, like, the story of Brent Castle, it was like, he was out for revenge. I'm assuming most of the time he went after criminals. So, like, who are these people, like, trying to punish is the question. And why won't they let the actual law do their job? It, and it also gets down to, like, who do you determine is a bad guy? There's even in uh, the 70s, and I think maybe in the early 80s, somewhere around there, there were a series of comics where the Punisher, like, shot at uh, at, at jaywalkers. <laughs> and, and it was, they, like, they, they retconned that later into it being, like, I, like he was on like he was being drugged or something like that they like tried to explain away this crazy behavior but that is like a writer wrote that because they were like well let's take this to the 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 extreme and i think the police officer acting in the same way is just another version of that who like who does he get to point at as the as as the bad guy I just find it convenient that, like, again, you just said he wasn't in his might, his right mind. So, like, white men are allowed to have mental illness and do fucked up things all of the <laughs> time, even in a comic book. That's awesome. So there is evidence piling up in how this image is used by officers, and it doesn't really work with protecting and abiding the law. But it doesn't even have to be rogue officers. CBR reported about the prevalence of the Punisher symbol among soldiers in the Iraq war and followed it with stating, Naturally, the men and women who served in Iraq eventually returned to the United States, and there is a good deal of interconnection between the military and the police. So it was unsurprising when American police officers also began to embrace the Punisher's logo at the start of the 21st century. 
Again, with a character as popular as the Punisher, it is only logical that a number of cops were already fans of the character growing up. However, the widespread usage of the Punisher's logo during the Iraq War likely increased the visibility of the symbol. The same reasons that the Iraqi police embraced the symbol was almost certainly the reasons why American police did so as well. The character, this argues, is seen as a symbol for the fight. But the thing is, they aren't going out with Batman logos. Batman is a hero who is waging a war on crime, has a general distrust of guns, and is usually pretty against murder. They aren't going out with the Superman logo. Superman famously stands for truth, justice, and the American way, is generally against murder, and upholds the peace. They aren't going out with Captain America logos, which, by the way, would be the most easily translatable symbol. He's a government-affiliated soldier who fights for the rights of all citizens, is generally anti-murder, and at one point was a cop in the comics. Has the name America in his name. (laughs) Right. And they aren't using those symbols. They're using the Punishers. And Jerry Conway, whose father was a police officer, and whose uncle was captain of the Academy of New York City, doesn't agree with this use of the character he helped create. During an interview with Sci-Fi, he responded, I've talked about this in other interviews. To me, it's disturbing whenever I see an authority figure embracing Punisher iconography because the Punisher represents a failure of the justice system. He's supposed to indict the collapse of social moral authority and the reality some people can't depend on institutions like the police or the military to act in a just and capable way. The vigilante antihero is fundamentally a critique of the justice system, an example of social failure. So when cops put Punisher skulls on their cars or members of the military wear Punisher skull patches, they're basically taking sides with an enemy of the system. They are embracing an outlaw mentality. Whether you think the Punisher is justified or not, whether you admire his code of ethics, He is an outlaw. He is a criminal. Police should not be embracing a criminal as their symbol. And I I cannot agree more. (laughs) It's like too ironic for like real life. And this seemed to anger several officers. I found several spirited posts declaring how righteous this symbol is to officers and soldiers. The oddest defense is one I found written in Law Enforcement Today by someone with the pen name Sergeant America. Oh, and I'm cutting the <laughs> I'm going to cut the angrier segments out of this, but the weird bit is as follows. The Punisher symbol has a special meaning to us. It's how we show that we hold the line between good and evil. And we are not alone. The entire police department in Solvay, New York had the logo put on their patrol cars and refused to remove it when citizens requested it be taken off. And it's that last part that I actually wanted to address, because I think this actually goes further to proving Conway's point. He's saying that this behavior is embracing an outlaw mentality, and the police refusing to listen to the citizens in their own community is a huge indictment on how that specific department is working. They are accepting themselves as morally superior and refusing to acknowledge their role as public servants. Yep. It is baffling. (laughs) Uh, But beyond even this, there is something else I read that stood out to me a little bit more. In a Vulture article, Marine Corps veteran Christopher Neff was quoted as saying, Frank Castle is the ultimate definition of Occam's razor for the military. Don't worry about uniforms, inspections, or restrictive rules of engagement. Find the bad guys. Kill the bad guys. Protect the innocent. 
any true warrior, that's the dream. And the thing that stood out more than any of the other quotes was a very specific word, warrior. If you've never heard of warrior training or bulletproof warrior training, it's mostly important to know that it is a very controversial program for officers. It is not mandatory, but it is a wide enough program that it has been attended by a great deal of police across this country. With the term killology as the background mentality, it has been incredibly controversial. Where you fall on your opinion of this program is really dependent on how you feel about officers being trained to be constantly alert and look for threats in any given situation. I am personally not a fan because I don't really like the idea of an authority figure with a gun feeling like they are threatened on a constant basis. Which is like, what? I know. It doesn't tend to lend itself to proper assessment or critical thinking. I'm going to quote from a New York Times article titled, Minnesota Police Officer's Bulletproof Warrior Training is Questioned. The Minnesota police officer who fatally shot an African-American during a traffic stop last week had recently undergone specialized training that critics say can lead officers to believe that they are under constant threat of being harmed and can intensify encounters with civilians. And continuing later, they go into more detail. The Bulletproof Warrior booklet handed out at the company's seminars addresses warfare as much as police work. A copy of the booklet was attained by the New York Times. It has charts and graphs on combat efficiency and perceptual distortions in combat. The booklet portrays a world of constant and increased threat to officers, despite more than two decades of declining violent crime in the United States and the fact that the last few years have been among the safest to be an American police officer. One section is titled Pre-Attack Indicators. It says... Unfortunately, the will to survive is all too often trained out of the psyches of our police officers and warns of predators and adversaries who are younger than officers and who have been in more gunfights and violent encounters. It advises, an attack on you is a violent act. What is the only way to overcome that violence? What? You might also recognize that the murder that necessitated this article uh, being written happened in Minnesota where George Floyd was murdered by the police and sparked nationwide protests and calls for defunding the police, leading to the city council proposing replacing the police department altogether. But before that happened, this happened. And still, like, so the training program had been banned by the mayor of Minneapolis due to its link to high-profile police killings in Minnesota and across the United States. But the police union in Minneapolis kept offering it anyway. This is all before the George Floyd murder. It just hurts sometimes when you're like, yeah, you've been freaking gaslighting us for years, like making us think like, you know, the police are here to serve and protect. And like here you're stating that they're taking a warrior training in like Minneapolis. Uh, It it gets um, much more uh, complicated. This I'm I'm only going to go over this a little bit. Uh, This is just a small portion of the issues with warrior training for police officers. There are too many concerns to list here and still stay on the topic at hand. So I'll just have to say that this would be a good time to do some personal research if you feel that I'm being unfair. I I mean, I can't, I'm sure there are some people that think I'm being unfair, but trust me, when you look into this, it gets crazier from there. 
It's also important to note that the quote specifically mentioning the warrior mentality that caused me to go down this little detour is from a Marine Corps veteran and not a police officer. But it seems clear that this has a lot to do with the appeal and should be considered when weighing whether or not the police should be brandishing Punisher skulls on their vehicles or uniforms. It's particularly worth thinking about considering the use of the logo with officers tends to be from its strange connection to Blue Lives Matter. Blue Lives Matter, for those that don't know, is a reactionary activist campaign that started in response to both the Black Lives Matter campaign and the murder of two police officers in New York. Black Lives Matter started in 2013 and the acquittal of George Zimmerman's murder of Trayvon Martin. The campaign highlights systemic racism and violence against African Americans, including by the police. This has led to many protests and calls for changes to police training and the American criminal justice system. And I'm going to quote from their webpage. Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systemically and intentionally targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, our our contributions to the society, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Now, this is an extremely worthwhile cause that should not be controversial. And yet it somehow is. The simple fact that it is controversial actually then makes the founding of Blue Lives Matter to be just as much or more controversial. For one thing, evoking the name of another cause immediately sets itself up as opposition. The role of Blue Lives Matter is to get the legislation calling for hate crime status to be applied to the targeting of police officers. And there is some merit to this. And I would argue that it is bad to murder someone for their job just as it is bad to murder someone for the color of their own skin. But the main difference here is that the black people face constant threats and suspicion while police officers are fucking police officers. At the end of the day, they are able to go home and take off their hat and be just another member of society. Black people don't have that option. They don't get to go shed the laws that have governed them in society or the color of their own skin. This also doesn't take into account that despite a rise in violent crimes, it has been consistently cited as far safer to be a police officer in recent years. This is before all of the uh, protests broke out, but I also don't care. Uh, In fact, researchers from Florida Atlantic University, Arizona State University, and the University of Texas at El Paso found huge drops in line of duty deaths and completely refuted the claim of a war on cops. But even beyond all of this, The Blue Lives Matter campaign intentionally chose to use the symbol of a comic book character known for working outside the law and murdering criminals. Yes. That is not how our justice system works, nor should it. This causes many concerns, some of which I will highlight from uh, this quote from CBR. Recently, the use of the Punisher symbol as a stand-in for the Blue Lives Matter movement came to a head in St. Louis where a pair of officers were being investigated by internal affairs and allegedly one of the reasons that they were being investigated was for their use of the Blue Punisher symbol. This led to Ed Clark, president of the St. Louis Police Officers Association, to request that his fellow police officers all begin to share the Blue Punisher logo. Clark noted that Blue Line symbol and the Blue Line Punisher symbol have been widely embraced by the law enforcement community as a symbol of the war against those who hate hate law enforcement. It's how we show the world that we hold the line between good and evil. And this, again, loops us back around to this warrior mentality of good fighting against evil and being under constant threat. This also ignores the history of the character, as well as the history of rogue officers using the symbol while acting unlawfully to escalate violence. None of this, as we've seen, is lost on the writers of the character. Beyond Conway, 
Garth Ennis has weighed in on the subject, saying, Frank's time as Marine is vital to understanding his character and the environment he came from. His three tours of duty gave him military experience, but he comes to see war as the answer to all of his problems. It's complicated, and he works through that in his own way. So with Ennis, it's clear that he understands the issue and why he appeals, but also wants to make it clear that seeing war as the answer is not a good thing and needs to be addressed with nuance. This is even brought up in the comic itself. In Punisher 13 uh, by Matthew Rosenberg, Simon Kudransky, Antonio Fabella, and Corey Pettit, I apologize if I fucked up anybody's names. <laughs> the Punisher is cornered in an alleyway by two officers when they realize who they've cornered and begin to show their admiration for him. The Punisher responds by saying, I'll only say this once. We are not the same. You took an oath to uphold the law. You help people. I gave that up a long time ago. You don't do what I do. Nobody does. You boys need a role model? His name is Captain America, and he'd be happy to have you. I, I also I want to point out that um, Marvel has been asked about police officers using uh, the Punisher symbol, and it gets really tricky in terms of uh, enforcing their trademark. Yeah. Uh, because you can, they're not a commercial entity, uh, police officers, I mean. Uh, so it's not like they're making money off of using uh, the Punisher symbol. So it's really hard. Uh, and it's like a murky area to actually enforce that. Uh, but Marvel's response was to point to this issue. And then when, when, when asked about like, how do you feel about police officers using the Punisher symbol? They pointed to like the Punisher's own quote about why it's a bad idea. <laughs> And with that, I really don't have much left to add about the connection between the Punisher and cops or soldiers, but we really haven't addressed the second group, and I unfortunately have to now talk about how the character is admired by white nationalists. Fine. Uh, in June of 2015, a white supremacist opened fire in a church, killing nine people, including a senator and a pastor, and all of whom were black. In the immediate aftermath, it was decided to remove Confederate monuments since they stood as symbols of a time when white men uh, fought each other over the right to own black people as slaves. This turned into a controversy, uh, controversy because it was seized by some conservatives and racists as removing history, regardless of the fact that these statues were of people from enemy armies who lost and by all rights were on the wrong side of history. Correct. This led to a march in Charlottesville in 2017, which was attended by neo-Confederates, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, Klansmen, various militias, and those considered to be alt-right. This march, which I want to emphasize, was ostensibly about protesting the removal of statues become a Unite the Right rally in order to unify the American white nationalist movement. Confederate flags, swastikas, and white nationalist pagan symbols flooded the streets of Charlottesville. Chants of slurs were, repeat, were repeated as they marched while holding signs stating Jews are Satan's children and other anti-Semitic Christian identity rhetoric. The whole thing turned into a shit show, and when the rally was finally over, two state troopers had died in a helicopter crash. One counter-protester had been murdered, and over 33 other people had been injured most of which happened when one of the white supremacists rammed his car into the crowd of counter-protesters. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was just kind of like, oh yeah, they did drive their car, and now that's like an ongoing tactic of just driving your vehicle through crowds of people. But continue, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that happened in uh, my home state of Indiana. Um, 
Now, I just, it wasn't like as violent of an act, but it was like, um, there was a protest in the middle of Indianapolis and a woman was uh, trying to drive through and the protesters were blocking traffic and she decided to uh, not stop. And it was like, she slowly drove through the crowd. I don't think anyone really got hurt, but she still ran people over. And uh, this was all recorded. And I believe she, I I don't, I I haven't looked it up recently, but at the, when I first read about it, she was not arrested. They, they, they brought her in for questioning and they had like video evidence of her running people over, regardless of whether or not anyone got hurt. She still did a thing where people could have gotten hurt. Yeah. I mean, cops have been doing that too. They're like, oh, well, they're cornering the police vehicle. So when they're cornered like that, the cop has the right to like do what they need to do to get out of that like mob. So quote unquote mob. So yeah, it's like there's no repercussions for things like that unless like, I don't know, someone actually dies, but then it's like maybe. Yeah, um, it's another one of those mind boggling things that just keeps happening. Um, but among the sea of white nationalists and hate-filled symbols at this rally was none other than the Punisher's skull. And you might wonder why this was there, but it kind of comes down to a couple of related reasons. The first is that it's part of the hypermasculinity present in these gatherings. For most people that, uh, that buy into these ideologies anyway, it's not just that you must be a man. You have to perform the exact characteristics of masculinity in extremely exhaustive detail, which includes the fetishization, I can't even say the fucking word, which includes the fetishization, I shouldn't have written this, uh, of violence and thus the symbols related. Uh, The other reason is that along with this focus on masculinity, there happened to be an abundance of pro-gun activists in the crowd, including militias like the Three Percenters, who often use the Punisher in their own branding. The Three Percenters are a far-right militia movement obsessed with the idea that someone is coming to take their guns, and an extreme focus on local authority over federal authority. While several of the group were at this rally, they were reportedly there to provide security, and in the immediate aftermath of the event, were banned from associating with alt-right groups from their national council because they didn't want to be linked to racist groups, which is kind of ironic considering this seems to contradict their mission statement of of taking orders from a federal authority. Uh, Also, it should be pointed out that Sasha Baron Cohen recently infiltrated a right-wing militia rally put together by the Washington State 3% and sang a country song about injecting Obama with the coronavirus and chopping up the WHO like the Saudis do. This caused a few to leave, but only a few. The majority of the crowd cheered and sang along, so I feel comfortable in calling these people pretty angry and pretty racist. Sounds accurate. (laughs) But to belabor this point, I'm going to quote from a Boston Globe article. Among the higher profile three percenters, according to the SPLC, is Tyler Tenbrink, a Texas man sentenced in 2019 to 15 years in prison in Florida for shooting at counter protesters in that state following an appearance at a local university by white nationalist Richard Spencer. A Gainesville, Florida police statement said Tenbrink and two other men were traveling in a Jeep when they stopped the vehicle to argue with counter demonstrators. The Jeep occupants began threatening, offering Nazi salutes, and shouting chants about Hitler to the group that was near the bus stop. During the altercation, Tenbrink produced a handgun and fired a single shot at the group, which thankfully missed the group and struck a nearby building. 
So, I mean, I, I feel comfortable in saying at least that person uh, who was uh, offering Nazi salutes and chanting about Hitler, probably <laughs> a racist. Probably. Uh, I, I'd go 60-40, you know? <laughs> but in any event, this sort of loops us back around to the point I was originally trying to make. See, militias tend to be big among white nationalists. This is partially due to the fact that gun shows and magazines happen to be huge recruiting grounds for specialized groups and also because the more extreme versions of those groups often cite or provide copies of the Turner Diaries, which has been called the Bible of the racist right by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC, which I quoted earlier. If you've never read the Turner Diaries, it is a novel about a violent revolution in the United States, which eventually turns into a race war that leads to a systemic... uh, extermination of anyone who is not white and hanging whites who were considered to be race traitors. It is a horrible story that fetishizes, again with that word, both death and racism and has been cited by several perpetrators of hate crimes or acts of terror. So the way it tends to work in these scenarios is that if you're a bit of a gun fan, you might go to a gun show or pick up a magazine. And there are tons of ads And some are for small militias or get-togethers. And some of those groups are actually white nationalists or fairly close and seed their ideology by introducing you to literature that has some truths and a lot of lies. Enough exposure to these these acts as an opportunity to be red-pilled into a new hateful line of thinking. Uh, I I don't go uh, quite into like all of the detail about like why this is a thing. Uh, there is a great book. Uh, it's an audio book called The War on Everyone by Robert Evans. I highly recommend uh, listening to that. It goes into much more of the racist and fascist uh, underpinnings in in America and sort of where that that spreads and why it became such a big deal in these militia groups. Okay. Uh, the alt-right and other similar groups tend to already be very pro-gun, so you'll find some intermingling already, even if it is somewhat begrudgingly on the side of those who really just care about their gun rights and don't want to be associated with such awful groups. But then you have the ones in the middle of this shitty Venn diagram who belong to both sides, and those are the ones who end up marching in the streets with signs like Jews are Satan's children and sporting a Punisher skull. You can see how this character has become so divisive and why, say, making a story about how he becomes black could be a really weird move. Granted, as I said before, all of this is documented after the story was written. But the core of the character and how he appealed to the types of people he appeals to hasn't changed. It is very possible, and I would argue very likely, that his fan base has always had a percentage of them wrapped up in militias, police academies, and even white nationalist organizations. But even if we dismiss all of that, there are other historical milestones we should discuss and how it relates to the story at hand. And that is what we will talk about next time. So, uh, Delisa, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Uh, To plug, at the moment, I am working on getting my nutrition consulting business up and running. So if anyone is looking for some help with food and uh, dietary things, you can look me up at Lanula Nutrition Consulting. That's L-U- N-U-L-A Nutrition Consulting um, on Instagram or Twitter. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate you um, uh, being on this episode and especially uh, making it so that it's not just a lone white voice talking about these weird (laughs) racial issues. It feels very uncomfortable to do so. And I I feel very good knowing that you're here. (laughs) I mentioned that I was black just so everyone's calm. I'm black. (laughs) 
Uh, well, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, you you can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episode at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at PedanticCast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays, but part two comes out this Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.comicallypedantic.com. If you'd like to support the show, help us stay ad-free, and possibly be mentioned on air, you can check out the Patreon link at the top of comicallypedantic.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them in text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like your name or question read on the air. We will be back in a few days with part two, but until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop. (laughs) 